Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. I hear a lot of coughing in the crowd this morning. A good morning to many of you watching and listening online this morning. We're glad you're with us uh, today. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of James. We're in chapter 3 and halfway through our series, A Normal Christian Life. James is going to address something today which is at the heartbeat of any human, let alone any church, the tongue. You know, the tongue or the use of speech as it is at the center of reality for every one of us sitting here and watching and listening today. The average North American has 30 conversations a day, and we will spend, listen to this, one-fifth of our life talking. In one year, our conversations will each fill 66 books at 800 pages a book. If you're a man, you speak an average of 20,000 words a day, and if you're a woman, you speak 30,000 words a day. I decided not to comment on that in my message this morning, other than to say, gentlemen, science backs our views up. Unbelievable. Think about that. 66 books, 800 pages of book, one-fifth of our lives, we do this, we talk. James knows since we've all been touched by sin. I love what Augustine wrote. Since we've been all bent towards perversity, our speech will become the battleground for one thing, a normal Christian life. See, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the reign and rule of God, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're really praying is, God, may your reign and rule start in one place, our mouth. Think about what James said in the first chapter, uh, verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, uh, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Remember last week, James taught us that works are a living symbol of genuine faith. And if there is no life change in a person's experience, then it is a great chance that that person has never encountered the living God through Jesus. So with that in mind, James now turns us to the practical. Two examples of holy works. Under the Holy Spirit, he moves us to deal with the greatest lordship issue in any church community throughout history. Speech first and then later money. Dissensions. Uh, disputes among us in Christian community, uh, they, which are caused by envy and selfishness and contentious, arrogant behavior, and also even self-pity, are expressed primarily through speech. He deals with speech twice in every single chapter in the book of James, so obviously it's important to him. Knowing the tongue is one of the greatest battlegrounds for the future of the church, and knowing that great good and great evil can come from the small place called the tongue he dives in. Modern science has now told us that once a sound wave is set in motion, it never ends. And think about this. This means that every word we have ever uttered, once it leaves our mouth, lasts forever. Our fall from God started right here. One wrote the first sin committed right after the fall was the sin of the tongue. When God came and he questioned Adam about his eating of the forbidden fruit, Adam turned around and slandered God by suggesting that God was indirectly responsible for the whole deal. Genesis 3.12, the woman you put here with me, uh, she gave me some of the fruit and then I ate it. And so with history about to be repeated again and again and again, James starts chapter 3 with these words. Verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know we who teach will be judged more strictly. 
Teacher is the same word as rabbi, the one who interprets and explains the law. Now, within the Christian community, just like the Jewish faith community, this role had authority and it also had prestige, which was actually elevated at that time because most people couldn't read. Teaching is a prominent gift. When you read Paul's letters and Romans and Ephesians and others, he puts teaching at the very top. Ephesians 4.11, uh, some are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, but some are also teachers. One wrote this, and it helped me. Listen closely. In short, the teaching function provides an indispensable complement to the gift of prophecy. The normative role of the gospel in Jesus' words provided and still do provide an invaluable control to charismatic excesses. Teaching preserves community, but prophecy, he writes, gives life in the now. With teaching, a community will never die, but without prophecy, it won't live. Understanding the power of words. Understanding that there is a constant danger of sinning by using the tongue. James starts the conversation with us today by saying, We who teach will be judged more strictly. This isn't talking about heaven or hell, but reward and loss. As Jesus taught, the person who is given much, much will be expected. This closer scrutiny is real, and each teacher and pastor and priest and elder and deacon, small group leader, youth leader, children's worker, counselor, and the list goes on and on. Every one of us will talk personally with Jesus about what was right and God-honoring and what was wrong and was not even in God's mind. And don't miss it. James uses the word we. He even knows that he's going to have to give an account to his risen, glorified half-brother too. Even those that were used to write scripture will be judged just like I will and just like many of you will also that are called. Now this is not a call to scare people off, by the way. Those that are gifted by the Spirit and called to serve in this way must of course be sure that they're Christians in the first place and then just be ready to count the cost. James says to us, as he said to those churches 2,000 years ago, teachers, even good teachers, must be so careful, for the tongue is what gets all of us as humans into trouble, and the gift, teaching, its primary vehicle is speech. He says, look, we all stumble in, in many ways. We, we all lose footing, right? We all trip, all of us have and will sin, some seriously, some in trivial ways, some known, some unknown by chance or impulse. Yet the point is this, sins of the tongue are the hardest to avoid for any of us. If anyone is never at fault in what they say, they're a perfect man able to keep the whole body in check. See, what James is starting to present to us is, is very simple conceptually, but difficult practically. If one can control the tongue, then one can chart a life that is blameless and God-honoring. Discipleship, the shape of Christian existence, the life that flows from the presence of the divine when it moves into us, when the Spirit of God is implanted in us at conversion, is won or lost in one place, the mouth. We put bits, he says, into the mouths of horses and make them obey us. And we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, he says. Although they are large and driven by very strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. He uses two everyday examples from his time. Put, simply put, uh, small things can control big things. Large is controlled by small, and the control is about one thing. It's about direction. A bit can control the whole direction of a horse. The rudder can move a ship even against very strong winds in a certain direction. 
as these images rested within their minds and our imaginations. Then he brings home the reality so much of us know about but never really want to think or talk about. Likewise, he writes, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what great force can be set on fire by a small spark. When I read the word boast this week, I took it as bad, right? You know, prideful, sinful, arrogant presumption. But really all James is saying here neutrally is, look, this has great power. But he doesn't end here. The story actually does have a very scary dark side. It actually has a shadow side that tends tends to again and again eclipse beauty and goodness and godliness in community. See, unlike the other parts of the body, the tongue has a disproportionate power, which much of the time leads to one terrible thing, human trauma. He uses, rightly, the image of fire. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by just a small spark, he says. One spark can grow exponentially and can lead to the death of people and thousands of animals and and property and acres of forest can be lost. Think about it, fire is almost unlimited in nature if fuel is present. I just got back from Southern California where I'm doing my grad studies, and only miles from my school, they had just been through some terrible fires. 336,000 acres were lost in days. Yet it was in 2007, in that very same place, where things got really bad for SoCal. In October of that year, 1,500 homes were destroyed, 500,000 acres were burned, nine people died directly connected to the fire. The fire was so intense and so vicious that NASA was able to see it from space and take unbelievable pictures. 85 people were injured, 61 of them being firefighters. Uh, The the fire uh, burned so badly that 6,000 firefighters had to be brought in, and then units of the American Army, and then the National Guard, and they were so desperate, they mobilized 3,000 prisoners who had been actually convicted of nonviolent crimes to come and fight the fire. Mexico and Canada sent in firefighters, and one million people were displaced. It was the largest evacuation in California's history. One lightning strike. It's all it takes. One campfire, one spark can do all of this. And James comes to us speaking at a such deeper level and says, 2007 is nothing. The destruction is nothing compared to the tongue sitting in our mouth right now. See, not deterred, James in blunt fashion pushes us further and further for God's glory and our own good. He says in verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of our body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his or her life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. James says it is a world of evil. The tongue is the source of sin. Uh, Reality really tells us it's a microcosm of wickedness. And truth behold, it it can corrupt the whole person. The tongue can stain everything that we are. It can affect our physical, emotional, mental, sexual, and relational selves. I love what Calvin wrote hundreds of years ago. A slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. All the sins of the fallen world are contained right within our little mouths. I mean, Jesus, I think, said it best, right? 
Matthew 15, where he said, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. But the things that come out of a man's mouth come from his heart, and these things make us unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. The tongue, James continues, can set a person's whole life or course of life on fire. Much of the time, we're not known for how we walk or even how we dress. When you really think about it, most of the time, we're known by how we talk. Fallen speech, James says, is within us from the cradle to the grave. And without God's intervention, it can move us from wholeness to ruin. It kills us. It kills reputations, our families, our small groups, our marriages, our personal relationships, our church community, and our world. It leads not only to the death of reputation, but let it go far enough and it can lead to real death through murder or even war itself. Proverbs says it so bluntly. With his mouth, the godless destroy a neighbor. But James's description is not done here. He goes a step further that, to be honest, as North American evangelicals, we just don't like. It doesn't fit into our pretty little systematic theologies that we've all built. See, we're not power-based people. We're cognitive over here. But James doesn't let us get away with it. He also says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. The phrase hell for us this morning is very important. Listen closely, everyone. One helped me when he wrote this. Except for its use here, hell is not found anywhere else in the New Testament except in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And every time it's used, only one person uses it. Jesus. The word literally means Valley of Hinnom, a deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem where trash and garbage and bodies of dead animals and executed criminals were dumped and it continually burned day and night. The location had originally been used by the Canaanites and later even by the Israelites to actually sacrifice, listen to this, sacrifice their little precious children as burnt offerings alive to the demon god Moloch. When that terrible practice was permanently halted by the godly king Josiah of Judah, the place then was considered unclean, wholly unfit for any decent usage. Therefore became a garbage dump where all the filth of the city and surrounding areas was taken and continually burned. Because the fire burned day and night, and because maggots were continually present because of the rotting garbage, Jesus decided to use that as his image for everlasting punishment. You can read about it in Mark 9, where the fire burns forever and the maggot or the worm does not die. But it has another meaning, too. At this time, it not only represented the future state of hell, it also was the stronghold of the kingdom of darkness. It was the location of Satan. It was considered the very epicenter of the kingdom of darkness, the God of this world and his power in this world, his reign and rule, the opposite of the Lord's prayer. This is what James says. Catch this, Christian. James comes to us and he addresses not only good teachers or bad teachers, but all of us and says this, the demonic. Hell itself can not only influence us, but work within us as Christians to cause terrible damage. Even the Christian tongue can be demonized to do great evil. James says to our uncomfortability, evil, he says, emanates from hell. It gives power to destroy. They empower, they influence, and they not only give opportunity to sin, but they can partially unite with a Christian to cause great destruction. How does it come out? 
simply foolish talk, blasphemy, slander against another, sexual talk that's used to degrade someone or to seduce them in, lying. Uh, Here's one, murmuring. I hear this in a church all the time as a pastor. I heard someone thought maybe murmuring, arrogant boasting, cursing, spreading rumors and lies and innuendo. And the last one, it's a classic, gossip. This poem really brought it home. I'm more deadly than a screaming shell from a howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts and I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth. No respect for justice. No mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea. And most of the time they are innocent. I never forget and I seldom forgive. My name is gossip. James says hell itself can unite within the church and cause terrible, terrible damage. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures, he says in verse 7 of the sea, they're being tamed or they've been tamed by people. James pushes us as reader and hearer back to the creation account. Within the biblical frame, these four groups were used to include sort of all the creation uh, that were relational, and they've been tamed. I mean, what did God say to Adam? Adam, you have dominion. But then, but then James says, but no man, no woman, no child can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. The only thing James has created, the only thing that has not been tamed within the relational kingdom is the tongue, which only says and only reflects and only speaks one thing. It speaks what is in the soul, the will, and in the heart of a person. The tongue is the vehicle to reveal a restless heart. James says we are simply not born good. This is not him being pessimistic. It's reality played out in every single human relationship since the beginning of time. The tongue, he says, is impossible to control. It is restless and wild, uncontrollable and untamable. It is undisciplined and irresponsible. It is irrepressible. It is savage, and it can lead a person to become unstable and double-minded, like we said a few weeks ago. The tongue is always liable to break out, and it's full of one thing. One thing. Deadly poison. The tongue is death-bearing. It is death-dealing. It is a monster of inconsistency. Again, James is taking us back to the creation account where Satan, right, took the form of a serpent whose very words were living poison that provided the environment where our parents ultimately chose to break the relationship with the Creator, which is the source of every single painful sin we have ever committed as a human family. And it started with words. It says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who have actually been made in God's likeness. It says, we as Christians praise our Lord and Father. Praise, by the way, is the highest, purest, most noblest form of speech. In James' time, Orthodox Jews and those who had embraced Jesus actually had a function where they praised God formally 18 times a day. You thought your devotional life was strenuous. Nothing. 18 times a day, and they would just talk about God's glory and who he was and how amazing. And then they would end by this. Blessed are you, O God. Blessed are you, O God. Blessed are you, O God. The Christian notion. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
James says we come as Christians, we've been united by God, into God by His Spirit, and though we love Him and we worship Him, then he says we turn around and we curse people. Cursing is the lowest, it's the filthiest, unnoble form of speech. And by the way, cursing here is not swearing. I know some of you want it to be, but it's not. It's so much deeper than this. When we let rage or anger or pride take over, this is where cursing really comes out. How many times have we heard someone say, or have we ourselves said over and against someone, God, damn you. Never forget all of creation came into being through the spoken word. There is power in words. And now we, at this moment, take God's name in vain to vent anger and rage, and we curse someone, and we ask God to send someone to the place where the worm never dies and the fire never dies. See, this cursing violates the value, the very preciousness of a human being. For all of us, no matter our gender, color, background, no matter what we look like, we are all made in the image and the likeness of God. Christianity stands as a shining beacon for human rights because we fundamentally believe that every life from conception forward is precious. Why? Because we are made in the image of the Creator. What did God say at the beginning? Let us, within Himself, He says, let us make humanity in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion. James says, you come and you praise and you curse. The theme of creation, repeated again and again, not only provides the background for James, it's his grounding. All of James's ethical teaching and Jesus's are connected to the time where the fall had not even happened yet. It's what theologians call creation ordinances. It says, my brothers and sisters, out of the same mouth, cursing and, and praising, verse 10, this cannot be, this should not happen. See, James is fully influenced by his brother's teaching. For James and for Jesus, a person's speech is the true barometer of one's spirituality if they're a Christian. Because speech reveals the heart. It reveals what we really think. It reveals presumption, thought, and attitude. James ends this way, giving three illustrations which walk every one of us to see that a pure heart and impure speech just don't connect. He starts with a spring, and I was thinking about that. We who live beside one of the largest freshwater bodies on earth underestimate the power of this image. A source of water in this part of the world could be life or death for a whole village. It would owe its very existence to a spring, and that spring would continue to need to produce one thing, fresh, sweet water. He says in verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? You can hear Jesus right in all of that. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James comes to us this morning with deep concern for the Christian community because he knows that at the very heart of our movement is the Lord Jesus in his name. And he also realizes that the burden of the world knowing there's a God that loves is also with us. And he realizes that our speech can lead our community in two different directions. I don't know if you even came this morning to hear from God. Maybe you were just too rushed. But I believe that God has things to say to us. We who've been Christians for decades and days and we who are not even Christians yet. To you who are not Christians yet, you who are the genuine seekers among us, 
you who are skeptical in the right way, hear me. Your mouth will never change until you get a new heart. No medicine, no therapy, no amount of self-help books or television programs are really going to deal with the problem of your mouth. Dave and I were talking uh, this week, and he, he gave me an old sermon, and so I'm publicly saying I'm stealing part of this right now. He preached this at a former church, and it was so relevant, I just said, I'm going to steal it. He admitted that he stole it from somewhere else, so I blessed him, and it was all good. But for you who are seekers, he wrote this, and it was great. He says, you've got to get a new heart. I mean, that's the problem. Ezekiel 18 says, rid yourself of all the offense you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Painting the outside of a pump, he wrote, does not make any difference if there's still poison in the well. I can change the outside, we declare. I I can turn over a new leaf. I, I really just, I can get a new life. But the truth is we can't just do a fresh start. So we need to come to the place where we let go of all the past and as scriptures say, become born again, start over, getting a new heart. St. Paul wrote these words, and if anyone knows about it, he sure does. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if a person be in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, they're a new person. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new life, a new heart, a new spirit. When you become a follower of Jesus, he wipes out everything you've done in your past. He says you're now starting over. It is like really being born again, and he gives you a new heart. David cried this out, and maybe if you're a seeker and you're in the place where you are ready to say, Jesus, I so desire you to save me from my sin, my heart, and my mouth. I desire you to become leader and Lord and save me from an eternity away from you, and I want life in the now. Cry out Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, because what's in my heart is going to come out of my mouth. God is a good God who will meet you, save you, give you life in the now and eternal life in the second chapter. He will transform you. And over time, as his spirit takes root in you, you will become a person of holiness you never, ever, ever could achieve by yourself. For the living God will come and give you a heart that is pure and your mouth will change and friends and neighbors will turn to you and say, who are you? And you'll finally have an answer. But for us who are the followers already, as I really wrestled with God this week, and I did, I believe that today is maybe more significant than many of us thought it was as you got here today. I believe that this is a call to break the power of hell among us here at Crothers Creek Community Church. See, if you have a problem with your tongue as a Christian, it's maybe more serious than you think. It means there's a heart problem. A person with a harsh tongue has an angry heart. Is that you? A person with a negative tongue, you have a fearful heart. A person with an overactive tongue, they have an unsettled heart. That's what I prayed about this week. A person with a boasting tongue has an insecure heart. A person with a filthy tongue just has a dirty heart. And a person who's critical all the time, whether publicly or not, you know who you are. You've got a bitter heart. Many of us have used our mouths against ourselves, against the family, against friend and enemy, against leadership, against this church or past churches, and we've used them in our small groups. We have crossed lines, and it was not, listen, it was not just us talking. We thought it was, but it wasn't. But hell was with us and beside us and had a foot inside of us and has brought division and death to our relationships. Many of us sitting right now have uttered words to ourselves or in public against people sitting right in this room, in this church, and hear me as one of your pastors. When we do this, hell, the kingdom of darkness, 
fallen angels can gain rights and grounds and accesses and privileges into our church, into your family, and into your very life, even as a Christian. Is the Spirit of God speaking to you this morning? Is he showing you at this moment in your mind's eye the very person you've spoken against? Can you hear the words you have thought and uttered time and time again? Is it self-hate? Is it gossip? Is it slander? Is it lies? Maybe it's just unwise talk. Is it complaining about things that are so trivial that when you get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, why did you waste your time? Is it undermining others? Is it attacking leaders or ministries? See, whether you speak out of pain or sin or history, or even if at points you were in the right, when the tongue is used as a weapon, not only are we sinning against God for we are assaulting someone or ourselves made in his image, but there is a great chance that the kingdom of darkness is moving in, and you thought it couldn't even happen. The question is this morning, what will we do with this? James says to a Christian community that the tongue can be set on fire by hell itself. Close your eyes for a moment. Do this with me. And for you watching and listening, unless you're driving, close your eyes too. At this moment, I ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, to send your spirit into this room. I ask you to do this also where anyone is watching or listening this. I ask for the light of the Lord Jesus Christ that reveals all things hidden. And I ask you now, Lord, to speak to your people. To me too, right now, Lord. This is your church, not mine. Come among your people right now and show them. Reveal things done in hiddenness or in public. Sit for a moment and wait. you have it? Some of you probably do. Pray this prayer right now to end this. Lord Jesus Christ, head of my life, forgive me. I have become a pawn of the enemy and I didn't even know. Forgive me for attacking myself. Forgive me for attacking others. Forgive me, Lord Jesus, and by your blood, clean me. I do not want any longer to be this person. Come, though you've given me a new heart, clean it out again. And then say this underneath your breath as a Christian, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his name, who conquered evil at the cross, I command evil to leave me. You will have no more rights, no more grounds, no more accesses, and no more privileges into me, or my family, or my small group, or this church. You are leaving, and I can only do this because Jesus gives me the power. Lord, I pray right now over our whole church, present and unpresent, that you would systematically begin to set this church free from the kingdom of darkness and our own sin where we have misused the tongue. And we pray, Lord Jesus, right now, hear my prayer. I cry this out. May the fire from hell in this church be replaced from fire in heaven. We ask for the Holy Spirit's fire in this church. We ask for the Holy Spirit's fire in this church. Because when the Spirit of God comes, there's healing and restoration. There is power and empowerment and many more come. We cry out, God, hear our prayer as a church. Send your Spirit. We are done without him. New fire, we pray it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I end with this as Sarah comes up to lead us in response. Just a practical note for all of us. 
I just think all of us need to get to the point where we ask God every day to help us. One of the most powerful images of a local church is a pure spring where the Holy Spirit brings out streams of living water. Yet to see this, I think we all need to ask God for help. And I think we all know it's true because just look at our own lives. And so maybe the psalm for us this year is Psalm 141.3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Why don't we all say this? We don't usually do it, but let's do it. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. I love what one commentator said this week. No wonder God gave us teeth. He knew there was going to be a restless animal that needed to be caged. What a great verse to memorize. God, put a muzzle on my mouth. Guard my lips. Don't let me be critical today. Don't let me be judgmental today. Don't let me say things off the cuff that I'm so going to regret. God, help every one of us as we move forward. And so, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for meeting with us today and by your word. We just pray, Lord, you continue to do stuff in our life. And I have an honest prayer, you know, Lord, some people so desperately need to be free of this. I pray you'd work some miracles this week among us. Hear our praise to you now, Lord, since we've confessed our sins. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.